Good morning. Welcome to Christ Church. My name is Peter Solaro, and I have the privilege of serving on the missions team here. We are so glad that you've chosen to spend some of your Sunday here worshiping with us. I'd like to offer an especially warm welcome to those of you joining us via live stream online. Thank you for being here with us. And if this is your first time either online or in person worshiping with us, I want you to know that you are heartily welcomed by the people of Christ Church and deeply loved by our Heavenly Father. If you take away nothing else today, know this. God loves you deeply. He rejoices in your worship today and he desires to know you more intimately. And we desire that too. So if this is your first time, I pray that you'll reach out to connect. You can either shoot us a text on the number on your screen or visit christchurch.us slash new. You can also give a holler to the people in the chat if you're joining us online. And now, beloved brethren, I invite you into worship of the one who gives us life, of the one who came here to give us life abundant, the one who gave his life for the forgiveness of our sins, and the one who will one day call each one of us home to life eternal. There we will join all the saints in glory, including our dear departed loved ones who we celebrate today. Oh, how I look forward to that day. Come, let us rise together and worship our Lord.
Please be seated. Today, on All Saints Day, we give thanks to God for those of our brethren who have gone home to be with the Lord over the last year. Both my mother and my grandmother are among them, and though my heart aches for the loss, I rejoice in the knowledge that they now bask with many of our loved ones in the warmth of God's radiant face. And I rejoice with gratitude for the love and care of this church community, those disciples who wrap each other so tenderly in prayer. In the care of the church, the bereaved experience Christ's love anew each day. Now, please join me in a responsive reading to celebrate our loved ones and give thanks for the blessing of their presence in our lives. Our great God, we gather this morning not alone, but with all the saints who worship in your presence. We gather We gather with thanksgiving for the testimonies and wisdom of those who have gone before us in the faith. We thank you, God, for those who are gone from our touch, but who have left the legacy of faith in our lives. We thank you, God, for these faithful ones who now rest from their labors. We pause for a moment of silence now to remember the faithful. Lord, keep us until that day when we join them in your presence. Cause their witness to quicken us as we serve Jesus with the church universal. For it is truly with all the saints that we pray in Jesus' name. Gracious and holy God, we give you humble thanks for our creation and all the blessings of this life. Take our gifts, our talents, and our lives and strengthen us to be your servants in the world. With each new day, Rekindle the grace that is within us and mold us to your purpose through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
come before you in deep gratitude for the marvelous mystery that is life on this earth. Lord, we thank you for the joys, the pleasures, the moments of love and connection and discovery, and Lord, those moments when we feel your presence. And Lord, we give thanks even for the times of trouble and difficulty. Lord, we know that in those moments you are with us ever the more. And Lord, we know that however exciting this life it is, it is but a, a shadow, a brief flicker of the glory to come. And Lord, we thank you that you loved us so much, that you desired relationship with us so deeply, Lord, that you gave your own son to die for the forgiveness of our sins. Let us never forget the weight of that sacrifice. Lord, I pray that each day we will have the, the courage, the strength, and conviction to live into your calling for us, to bring about a world here on earth that more closely reflects the kingdom of heaven. And we thank you, Lord, for those many, many kingdom servants working tirelessly around the world to advance your mission. Many of them, Lord, in parts of the world that are not sympathetic to our cause. 
Lord, I pray you would give them strength and courage as they pursue and spread the gospel even in places of persecution. We know they are many, but we know the fruits of their labor are great. And Lord, now we join together in praying the prayer that your son taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. My grandfather was a Navy CB in World War II. And so Veterans Day holds a special place in my heart. And if you feel a similar reverence for that special day, I hope you'll join us next weekend online, Sunday at 3 p.m., for a rebroadcast of our 2019 Veterans Day concert, honoring our veterans. Uplifting patriotic and sacred selections will be presented by the 100-voice Christ Church Chancel Choir and Women's Ensemble, the internationally acclaimed Chicago Brass Band, and of course, the esteemed Singing Men of Oak Brook. Friends, it's no secret that this has been a challenging season for us all. In addition to the pandemic, a tumultuous election cycle has added stress and anxiety to our days. With that in mind, many of you, prayer warriors, have asked how you can be praying for our community and country leading up to the election. I'm pleased to tell you that my friend and colleague, Pastor Dave Bianchin, has put together a prayer guide to help us draw closer to God this season, bringing him all our cares and concerns and seeking his direction in the days ahead. You can download this wonderful resource by visiting christchurch.us slash pray. Before we return to worship this morning, I'd like to share a story with you about a girl named Tatiana. When Tatiana was a little girl, her mother was sentenced to over a hundred months in prison, and she was traumatized. Left in her grandmother's care, Tatiana would pray each Christmas morning, Lord, I just want Mama to be here. Every missed birthday and holiday became another dent in the mother-daughter relationship. One Christmas, Tatiana stayed in her bedroom all day because she knew she couldn't celebrate with gifts like the other kids did. Her hurt turned into resentment and bitterness grew deep roots in her heart. She began to question her self-worth and identity, and as a teen, she even battled thoughts of suicide. But in the midst of this darkness, Tatiana's mother called. She asked Tatiana and her brother to write down their deepest Christmas gift wishes and mail them to her in prison. Tatiana later learned that her mother 
had signed their family up for Angel Tree. You see, our mission partner here at Christ Church, Prison Fellowship, shares the love of Christ with prisoners and families. And during the holidays, Prison Fellowship's Angel Tree program connects children with their imprisoned parents through Christmas gifts. Every gift is delivered directly to a child, showing them that they have not been forgotten by their parent. If it hadn't been for Angel Tree, 15-year-old Tatiana may not have received anything at all that Christmas, let alone a gift from her mom. A smile spread across her face the moment she saw that Angel Tree gift tucked beneath the Christmas tree. For once, the feelings of abandonment began to melt away. Angel Tree helped mend our relationship, Tatiana said. Every time she signed us up, she let me know that she wasn't just thinking about herself that holiday. She was thinking about us too. And it made me feel loved and cared for. In 2015, Tatiana chose to visit her mother in prison for the first time since her incarceration. They had so much to catch up on and so little time. Since then, Tatiana and her mom have grown closer to God together. Although they barely saw each other for years, they now pray together regularly. Tatiana even moved to Hallahassee, Florida to be closer to the prison. My mom and I have an outstanding relationship today, Tatiana says. Angel Tree brought us closer to God. As you can see on the screen, Tatiana is now a thriving 19-year-old. She is earning her associate degree and planning to complete her bachelor's in social work. What's more, she has gone on to create Daisy's Dollhouse, a mentoring program for youth with incarcerated parents named after her mother. Stories like Tatiana's demonstrate the transformation and restoration that are possible through Christ. And you and I can play a role in these stories too. This year, you can do it all safely from the comfort of home. Simply visit christchurch.us slash angeltree before December 1st to purchase an angel tree gift. Each gift provides a child with a gift card, a personal message of love from the imprisoned parent, an age-appropriate gospel presentation. What's more, every angel tree family is given a free Bible in English or Spanish. This Christmas, let's show children like Tatiana, who are missing mom and dad, that they are deeply loved by their imprisoned parent, by the people of Christ Church, and by their Heavenly Father. Friends, stories like these show us that God is changing lives through the work of our mission partners, Christ-centered organizations like Prison Fellowship and so many others. Did you know that when you give to Christ Church, you support some 80 individuals and organizations who are changing lives and spreading the gospel from Lombard to Chicago to China to Kenya? Your giving doesn't just make our ministry here at Christ Church possible. It has true kingdom impact around the globe. You can give online via our website, via text, or by mail. 
And if you're joining us here in person this morning, you can drop a gift off in the basket on your way out of worship. No matter how you choose to give, please know this. Your generosity supports so many ministries doing God's kingdom work here, near, and far. Thank you for that. And now, let us join together in worship by offering God his tithes and our offerings. Give thee thy 
A very warm welcome to all of you who are joining us in person for worship here at our Butterfield and our Oakbrook campuses today, and also to all of you who are part of our online community. We're thrilled to have you in the circle with us. As we head this week into what is arguably one of the most bitterly contested uh, presidential and wider elections of our time, in the midst of what I think most of us would acknowledge is one of the most contentious and tumultuous periods, at least in recent American history, I want to think with you upon some words that strike me as remarkably countercultural and enormously needed as they come to us from the writings of the Apostle Paul. We've been thinking over these recent weeks about the message that Paul gives to the Roman church because of its profound relevance for the church of today in the midst of these times. Listen with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. Hear the word of God. Be devoted to one another in love. Let me say that again. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. If you've been with us over these last two weeks or might be willing to go back to our website and catch up on the messages that have gone before this one, then you will know that Paul in Romans chapter 12 is writing in order to remind the local church of its identity and its mission. Paul has been trying to speak to the church because it is in danger of forgetting its identity and its mission as the church is tempted to be distracted in almost every age. Paul has been saying here that what makes the followers of Jesus really different, what allows them to be the kind of transforming salt and light that every single society needs is that they will not be conformed to the pattern of this world. They will not be like just everyone else. They will not have their, line, their lives and their patterns and their ways of being aligned with the common modes of the cultures of their time. They will be countercultural people. They will, for example, I suggest, vote based on their sense of which candidate and which policies best align with not some earthly empire so much as with the kingdom of God, the heavenly kingdom that goes on forever. They are not primarily conformed to the left and the right, to the red and the blue, to this race and that other group of people, pattern of this world. Instead, they will value everyone as we explored last week. They will have an uncommon ability to see the value of everyone because of the image of God in them and the gifts that they can bring to the whole. But here in this particular text we're looking at today, Paul turns up the dial further and he makes it clear that the followers of Jesus won't just care for everyone, they will be champions of the good of everyone and for everyone. 
They will be people who demonstrate an exceptional kind of devotion, honor, sharing, hospitality, empathy, desire for harmony, and for association with other people. They will not be satisfied with merely pursuing their own good, no matter how many voices shout to them, urging them to care most about their own world, their own good, their own uh, property and needs, but they will instead be ones who, as Paul says specifically, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. For the common good. I'd like to think with you today about that phrase, the common good, and what it would mean for you and me to be people who pursue that together. To appreciate how countercultural that particular calling is, you have to look no further than the very words that are most frequently spoken today. A few years ago, a group of researchers used Google, I think you've heard of Google, uh, to study the words that were used in the literature of our time. Specifically, these uh, researchers used Google to study the words and phrases that appeared in books of the last half century, and they scanned nearly three quarters of a million books to see what the patterns were. What they found over time is that communal language, such as common goals or community goals or work as a team or the phrase band together or share or we are one, and even that phrase the common good had steadily declined in usage over these past 50 years. At the same time, researchers found that there had been a marked increase in individualistic language. Phrases like, I am the greatest, I love me, my needs, I can do it myself, I come first, had overshadowed the use of the communal language that had been a much larger part of our society 50 years ago. Certain words, they noticed, had especially gone out of vogue. The use of the word uh, gratitude, for example, had declined by 49%. The term humbleness or humility by 52% in common usage. And the word kindness had dissipated in common use by more than 56% in just 50 years. The words modesty, discipline, honesty, patience, faith, wisdom, and even evil had all faded significantly from the mainstream of American public discourse. And during the same period, a University of Michigan study found that empathy, which is the inclination to put yourself in the shoes of somebody else and really even consider what it would be like to be in those shoes and to feel what that experience of theirs might actually bring up in one, that empathy had declined since 1970 by 40%, the biggest drop occurring since the year 2000. Our ability to empathize with other people. Now, commenting on this particular trend, the 
New York Times columnist David Brooks made this observation. Over the past half century, our society has become more individualistic. As it has become more individualistic, it has also become less morally aware because social fabrics, communal fabrics, and moral fabrics are inextricably linked. And the first two trends have led to certain forms of social breakdown, he contends, which governments have tried to address, sometimes successfully and often impotently. I would add that government is immensely important. Uh, It is an important uh, gift of God to address many of the needs in our world, but government is not and will never be enough to shape the underlying moral character that makes a society great. As Chuck Colson, who founded Prison Fellowship, we've spoken about that this morning, and who was himself a member of the Nixon administration, went to prison for his role in the Watergate scandal, as Colson has said, while politics is based on the premise that society must be changed in order to change people, in the politics of the kingdom, it is people who must be changed in order to change society. That's a very different way of looking at life. Will our trust be in government's capacity to change people or in the role that the kingdom plays at the core level to change people who can then change a society. The church's role, writes Colson, is to transform society primarily by putting on display God's love revealed in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think it's an accident that these changes in language that Google and others are are revealing, or these changes in moral frameworks, and even in our ability to feel for other people, that I don't think it's an accident that these things have happened at the same time and at about the same rate that local church attendance in the United States has declined. I think there's a linkage here, which is why I do not believe that as significant as this election this week is, some say it's the most important election in history. I do think it is important, I would say, and I pray that every single one of us will go out and exercise the freedom to vote this coming week. But as my friend Mike Woodruff recently said, the most important question is not really who we will install as president, the most important question will be who you and I will allow to be our king. The Christians to whom the Apostle Paul wrote long ago lived under an emperor, a very powerful, charismatic emperor, but they made Jesus their king. They followed a king who they remembered had once been pouring himself out, teaching a crowd of thousands and thousands of people. And when it was lunchtime, his disciples said, hey, let the people, tell the people to get out of here, to go home, to fend for themselves. (laughs) And Jesus said, no. I want us to to think about how we can help all 5,000 of these people get fed. 
The first Christians followed a king who, while thronged by admiring peasants, stopped to have lunch with Zacchaeus, who was a hated rich man, because Jesus saw him as important too, as significant as the masses. He saw the potential in this man. The early Christians followed a king who on another occasion went out of his way to extend love to a Samaritan woman, the enemy of Israel, and yet he extended love to her. Her own village had written her off as hopeless because of all the problems in her life, and she had plenty, but the love of Jesus enwrapped her and changed her And scripture records in John chapter 4 that she then was used to transform her entire village. The disciples noticed that their king did not simply work for the well-being of a privileged few or entirely for the disadvantaged. They watched him spread his arms wide on a cross to embrace those who loved him and those who hated him. And they remembered his words that whoever would be greatest amongst you must become the servant of all, of everybody. I've wondered sometimes recently uh, what Jesus would make of today's debate over the proposed fair tax amendment to the Constitution of Illinois. I don't know if you have followed that debate. If you own a TV, you've had no choice. Some say in this debate, hey, it's about time we made the millionaires and the billionaires pay their their fair share. How many times we've heard that echoing through the airwaves. While others will say, why would you make me more vulnerable to the taxing power of a state government that's proved it has no fiscal responsibility? It's become increasingly like this in a lot of places, in a lot of the debates of our time. The conversation is increasingly individualistic instead of communal. It's about what works for me instead of about what could make society work better for all, for all of us. I don't know of what you make of the comedian Trevor Noah, but I read an interview in the Wall Street Journal magazine a short while ago in which Trevor Noah asked, what's the one thing you hope to see change in this world? And Noah answered this way. He said, for people to stop seeing society as a zero-sum game. We've somehow convinced ourselves, he said, that in order for one person to win, other people have to lose. Even at our best today, it seems like the highest we often reach for is for what political scientists call the public interest. The public interest is defined as the most good for the most people. In that sense, and I suppose in the short term, voting for the fair tax amendment could could seem to satisfy the public interest. Address our state budget crisis and all those public pension needs just by asking more of the affluent. That would seem to help the most people, one argument would say. But the common good is something different. Political philosophers and theologians define the common good as the most good for all people. Not for the most people, but for all people. 
Pursuing that would involve bringing lawmakers and business leaders together in a spirit of mutual consideration and mutual sacrifice to try and find a strategy to address our budget crisis and preserve the vital business community needed to help lift all people. That's closer to what pursuing the common good would look like. A common good mentality holds then in a society that gives up looking for win-win solutions, everybody's going to lose in time. People will become demotivated, fragmented, separated, and we'll all lose. I'm guessing that by now some of you are thinking, Dan, you're a little bit crazy. You are obviously naive. You must be misinformed, and I may well be. You do not need to vote for me. You don't. But it is the job of Christian pastors, and I would suggest it's the job of every disciple of Jesus Christ, to live with what theologian Reinhold Niebuhr once called a certain sublime madness. We are meant to be dreamers. We are meant to raise our vision above what has been settled for. We're meant to do that even if we're called foolish. For as the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the church at Corinth, the foolishness of God is even wiser than human wisdom. And because we have the king that we do, we must never stop praying for and pursuing a vision that lifts everybody all to an even greater state of flourishing than is existing now. This is how the early church approached life. They did not reject rich people like Joseph of Arimathea or Lydia of Philippi. They valued them for what they brought. And they inspired them to use those gifts in the most creative possible ways. They didn't ignore uh, people like Lazarus because they were off in some neighborhood that that was far away from them. The book of Acts chapters 2 and 4 tells us that the early Christians were known for giving to others as they had real need. For the first Christians, it wasn't law and order or mercy It wasn't personal responsibility or compassion. It wasn't Jews or Gentiles. It wasn't workers or masters. It was hope for all. It was a vision of the common good that Jesus had inspired in them. And the Bible says that so beautiful was their way of life that, and I quote, they enjoyed the favor of all the people And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, those who were being transformed. And this little cell, this little band of brothers and sisters, God used to revolutionize Roman civilization. For all of its faults, and there have been many of them because we're human beings, the church of Jesus Christ throughout history has kept alive the sublime madness that with the help of God, we can achieve more of the common good. For example, in a famous encyclical in 1891, Pope Leo XIII wrote this, I quote, 
The common good is the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more easily or more fully. It is the sum total of conditions which allow people to reach their potential more fully and more easily. In this particular paper, written again, 1891, Leo outlines a vision that might seem very commonplace to us today, not something that he'd be incredibly impressed by, but only, but only because it unleashed a revolution of thinking in his time that led to the world we have. We can only even think that this is normal because it he created this new idea. He brought it back into common discourse, this vision of the common good. Leo spoke of the rights of workers to a fair wage and safe working conditions and even advocated for the formation of trade unions. But he also went out of his way to affirm the rights of property owners and the importance of free enterprise. He boldly opposed both socialism on the one side and laissez-faire capitalism on the other side. He believed, as St. Paul did, that love must be sincere, and for it to be sincere, we should hate what is evil about the extremes of these systems, and we should cling to what is good. As I argued in the first installment of this series, no party, no politician, no pastor, no person has all of the corner on good and evil. We have to constantly find ways to talk about what makes life work better for everyone. As we move to a close today, let me just say that other than trying to help us remember our roots as Christians, the main reason I have raised the topic of common good is for one very strategic reason. I don't think the outcome of Tuesday's elections will be the end of our conflicts. Do you? So how, as followers of King Jesus, can we be a creative voice in the midst of the mess? How are we gonna do that? Well, here are two ideas, simple ones, courtesy of my friend Andy Crouch, with whom I serve on the Fuller Seminary Board. First, start some conversations with your family, your friends, your neighbors, the people that you bang heads with maybe, about the common good. You may not see eye to eye with them about what human flourishing looks like in all of its aspects. You may not agree right now on the methodology to even improve things, but just raising the subject of what people really need to thrive to reach their full potential. Just raising that subject can shift us away from battles over particular topics and issues and move us towards the more fundamental questions and the desires that lie often unexplored beneath them. In a time when discussions between people with different convictions often end even before they begin, you've seen that, we need conversation starters. We need them. And a conversation about what constitutes the common good could be a beginning place. 
The second reason to pursue the subject of the common good is because it allows us, says Andy, to stake out our Christian convictions about what is good, not just for us, but for all of humanity. And to dare our neighbors to clarify their own convictions about that. Philosophy professor Bradley Lewis asserts that in the simplest sense, the common good is God. It's God who satisfies what people need most individually and communally. So if we are not offering our neighbors the ultimate common good, the knowledge and love of God, we are not taking the idea of the common good seriously enough. Let me just leave you today with this vision. You're on a plane flying over a beautiful land. I know it's hard to imagine that. That'll happen again someday. It will. But just imagine yourself. You're in that plane and you're, you're eating your peanuts with your head down. You're surrounded by all these strangers. There's tension in that plane because it's, a, it's been a long time since any one of us on this flight felt really good about life. Things have gotten so hard. When all of a sudden somebody, a few rows in front of you, begins to sing... And they begin to sing out this song that sounds to your ears really quite strange, but also somehow familiar. It begins with these repeated intonations in a language that you don't really know. Is that Swahili, you wonder? But before you can even answer the question, another voice uh, across the aisle has joined in. And this one is syncopated now with the other voice, but it is in perfect pitch, you notice. And then another voice behind you joins in, and then another and another, till suddenly you are surrounded with what seems an impossibly good, stunningly beautiful chorus of a song about the great circle of life that wraps us all together, the miracle of existence, the grace to keep striving, the web that connects us all. And in a moment, you and just about every other passenger in the plane are tapping your feet and you're singing along and a group of silent strangers has been transformed into a choir of hope in the middle of the air. That's what happened on March the 14th, or 31st, 2014, when a group of passengers on Virgin Australia Flight 970 found themselves in the midst of a flash mob choir courtesy of the Australian cast of Disney's The Lion King. You can see it on video. That is something of what I hope happens in the days following November 3rd, no matter how this election turns out. I pray that you and I will lift up the song, will lift up the tune of hope that the early church sang, 
As Matt Woodley remarks, there may not be a lot we can do to steer the plane. There may not be a lot we can do to ensure a perfectly safe or smooth landing, but we can sing the song. We can be united and joyful in our song, the song of God's desire to lead us to the common good, which, above all else, means to bring us back to himself. Please pray with me. Gracious God, may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Move, we pray, Lord God, through these upcoming elections to accomplish the purposes you have for this land. But remind us above all else, Lord God, that the ultimate transformation begins in the hearts of citizens, in the hearts of people surrendered to you. Enable us, Lord God, your church, like that early church long ago, to be the salt and the light that brings genuine hope and flourishing to all. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. What would it have been like to live in Rome <laughs> under the Caesars? To see a society ravaged in so many ways by disparities, chasing after idols, bitterly struggling for power in so many places. What would it have been like to be a Christian in the first century? You know because you live in that new first century. And just as those believers long ago held fast to that which was good, rendered to no one evil for evil, comforted the afflicted and bound up the brokenhearted,
so can we in the days to come. And so, beloved, go forth in all of the love and the power and the hope of the gospel's message. Seek out the way of the Lord and his kingdom above all else. And may the blessings of God Almighty, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, descend upon you, remain within you, work out through you until we meet again. Next week, we'll be here, we'll be open, no matter what happens, and forevermore. Amen.